Chapter 2. A Stranger on the Road 56. The previous chapter should not be read as a cool and detached description of today's problems, for, quote, the joys and hopes, the grief and anguish of the people of our time, especially of those who are poor or afflicted, are the joys and hopes, the grief and anguish of the followers of Christ as well. Nothing that is genuinely human fails to find an echo in their hearts, unquote. In the attempt to search for a ray of light in the midst of what we are experiencing, and before proposing a few lines of action, I now wish to devote a chapter to a parable told by Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Although this letter is addressed to all people of goodwill, regardless of their religious convictions, the parable is one that any of us can relate to and find challenging. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go. And do likewise. Luke ten twenty five through thirty seven. The context fifty seven. This parable has to do with an age old problem. Shortly after its account of the creation of the world and of man, the Bible takes up the issue of human relationships. Cain kills his brother Abel, and then hears God ask, quote, "Where is your brother Abel?" Unquote. Genesis four nine. His answer is one that we ourselves all too often give, quote, am I my brother's keeper, unquote. By the very question he asks, God leaves no room for an appeal to determinism or fatalism as a justification for our own indifference. Instead, he encourages us to create a different culture in which we resolve our conflicts and care for one another. 58. The book of Job sees our origin in the one creator as the basis of certain common rights. Quote, did not he who made me in the womb also make him? And did not the same one fashion us in the womb? Unquote. Job 31.15 Many centuries later, St. Irenaeus would use the image of a melody to make the same point. Quote, one who seeks the truth should not concentrate on the differences between one note and another, 
thinking as if each was created separately and apart from the others. Instead, he should realize that one and the same person composed the entire melody, unquote. 59. In earlier Jewish traditions, the imperative to love and care for others appears to have been limited to relationships between members of the same nation. The ancient commandment to, quote, love your neighbor as yourself, unquote, Leviticus 19.18, was usually understood as referring to one's fellow citizens. Yet the boundaries gradually expanded, especially in the Judaism that developed outside of the land of Israel. We encounter the command not to do to others what you would not want them to do to you. See Tobit 4.15. In the first century before Christ, Rabbi Hillel stated, quote, This is the entire Torah. Everything else is commentary. Unquote. The desire to imitate God's own way of acting gradually replaced the tendency to think only of those nearest us. Quote, the compassion of man is for his neighbor, but the compassion of the Lord is for all living beings, unquote. Sirach 18.13. 60. In the New Testament, Hillel's precept was expressed in positive terms. Quote, in everything do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets, unquote. Matthew 7.12. This command is universal in scope, embracing everyone on the basis of our shared humanity, since the Heavenly Father, quote, makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, unquote. Matthew 5, 45. Hence the summons to, quote, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful, unquote. Luke 6, 36. 61. In the oldest texts of the Bible, we find a reason why our hearts should expand to embrace the foreigner. It derives from the enduring memory of the Jewish people that they themselves had once lived as foreigners in Egypt. Quote, you shall not wrong or oppress a stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Unquote. Exodus 22, 21. Quote, you shall not oppress a stranger. You know the heart of a stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Unquote. Exodus 23, 9. Quote, when a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the stranger as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Unquote. Leviticus 19.33-34 When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not glean what is left. It shall be for the sojourner, the orphan, and the widow. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Unquote. Deuteronomy 24, 21 through 22. The call to fraternal love echoes throughout the New Testament. Quote, for the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, unquote. Galatians 5, 14. Quote, whoever loves a brother or sister lives in the light, and in such a person there is no cause for stumbling, but whoever hates another believer is in the darkness, unquote. 1 John 2, 10 through 11. Quote, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Whoever does not love abides in death, unquote. 1 John 3, 14. Quote, those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen, unquote. 1 John 4, 20. 62. Yet this call to love could be misunderstood. St. Paul, recognizing the temptation of the earliest Christian communities to form closed and isolated groups, 
urged his disciples to abound in love, quote, for one another and for all, unquote. 1 Thessalonians 3.12. In the Johannine community, fellow Christians were to be welcomed, quote, even though they are strangers to you, unquote. 3 John 5. In this context, we can better understand the significance of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Love does not care if a brother or sister in need comes from one place or another. For, quote, love shatters the chains that keep us isolated and separate. In their place, it builds bridges. Love enables us to create one great family where all of us can feel at home. Love exudes compassion and dignity, unquote. Abandoned on the wayside. 63. Jesus tells the story of a man assaulted by thieves and lying injured on the wayside. Several persons passed him by, but failed to stop. These were people holding important social positions, yet lacking in real concern for their common good. They would not waste a couple of minutes caring for the injured man, or even in calling for help. Only one person stopped, approached the man, and cared for him personally, even spending his own money to provide for his needs. He also gave him something that in our frenetic world we cling to tightly. He gave him his time. Certainly, he had his own plans for that day, his own needs, commitments, and desires. Yet he was able to put all that aside when confronted with someone in need. Without even knowing the injured man, he saw him as deserving of his time and attention. 64. Which of these persons do you identify with? This question, blunt as it is, is direct and incisive. Which of these characters do you resemble? We need to acknowledge that we are constantly tempted to ignore others, especially the weak. Let us admit that, for all the progress we have made, we are still, quote, illiterate, unquote, when it comes to accompanying, caring for, and supporting the most frail and vulnerable members of our developed societies. We have become accustomed to looking the other way, passing by, ignoring situations until they affect us directly. 65. Someone is assaulted on our streets, and many hurry off as if they did not notice. People hit someone with their car and then flee the scene. Their only desire is to avoid problems. It does not matter that, through their fault, another person could die. All these are signs of an approach to life that is spreading in various and subtle ways. What is more, caught up as we are with our own needs, the sight of a person who is suffering disturbs us. It makes us uneasy, since we have no time to waste on other people's problems. These are symptoms of an unhealthy society, a society that seeks prosperity but turns its back on suffering. 66. May we not sink to such depths. Let us look at the example of the Good Samaritan. Jesus' parable summons us to rediscover our vocation as citizens of our respective nations and of the entire world, builders of a new social bond. This summons is ever new, yet is grounded in a fundamental law of our being. We are called to direct society to the pursuit of the common good, and with this purpose in mind, to persevere in consolidating its political and social order, its fabric of relations, its human goals. By his actions, the Good Samaritan showed that, quote, the existence of each and every individual is deeply tied to that of others. Life is not simply time that passes. Life is a time for interactions, unquote.
67. The parable eloquently presents the basic decision we need to make in order to rebuild our wounded world. In the face of so much pain and suffering, our only course is to imitate the Good Samaritan. Any other decision would make us either one of the robbers or one of those who walked by without showing compassion for the sufferings of the man on the roadside. The parable shows us how a community can be rebuilt by men and women who identify with the vulnerability of others, who reject the creation of a society of exclusion and act instead as neighbors, lifting up and rehabilitating the fallen for the sake of the common good. At the same time, it warns us about the attitude of those who think only of themselves and fail to shoulder the inevitable responsibilities of life as it is. 68. The parable clearly does not indulge in abstract moralizing, nor is its message merely social and ethical. It speaks to us of an essential and often forgotten aspect of our common humanity. We were created for a fulfillment that can only be found in love. We cannot be indifferent to suffering. We cannot allow anyone to go through life as an outcast. Instead, we should feel indignant challenged to emerge from our comfortable isolation and to be changed by our contact with human suffering. That is the meaning of dignity. A Story Constantly Retold 69. The parable is clear and straightforward, yet it also evokes the interior struggle that each of us experiences as we gradually come to know ourselves through our relationships with our brothers and sisters. Sooner or later, we will all encounter a person who is suffering. Today, there are more and more of them. The decision to include or exclude those lying wounded along the roadside can serve as a criterion for judging every economic, political, social, and religious project. Each day, we have to decide whether to be good Samaritans or indifferent bystanders. And if we extend our gaze to the history of our own lives and that of the entire world, all of us are, or have been, like each of the characters in the parable. All of us have in ourselves something of the wounded man, something of the robber, something of the passers-by, and something of the Good Samaritan. 70. It is remarkable how the various characters in the story change, once confronted by the painful sight of the poor man on the roadside. The distinctions between Judean and Samaritan, priest and merchant, fade into insignificance. Now there are only two kinds of people, those who care for someone who is hurting and those who pass by those who bend down and help, and those who look the other way and hurry off. Here, all our distinctions, labels, and masks fall away. It is the moment of truth. Will we bend down to touch and heal the wounds of others? Will we bend down and help another to get up? This is today's challenge, and we should not be afraid to face it. In moments of crisis, decisions become urgent. It could be said that, here and now, anyone who is neither a robber nor a passerby is either injured himself or bearing an injured person on his shoulders. 71. The story of the Good Samaritan is constantly being repeated. We can see this clearly as social and political inertia is turning many parts of our world into a desolate byway, even as domestic and international disputes and the robbing of opportunities are leaving great numbers of the marginalized stranded on the roadside. In his parable, Jesus does not offer alternatives. He does not ask what might have happened had the injured man or the one who helped him yielded to anger or a thirst for revenge. Jesus trusts in the best of the human spirit. 
With this parable, he encourages us to persevere in love, to restore dignity to the suffering, and to build a society worthy of the name. The Characters of the Story 72. The parable begins with the robbers. Jesus chose to start when the robbery has already taken place, lest we dwell on the crime itself or the thieves who committed it. Yet we know them well. We have seen descending on our world the dark shadows of the neglect and violence in the service of petty interest of power, gain, and division. The real question is this. Will we abandon the injured man and run to take refuge from the violence? Or will we pursue the thieves? Will the wounded man end up being the justification for our irreconcilable divisions, our cruel indifference, our intestine conflicts? 73. The parable then asks us to take a closer look at the passers-by, the nervous indifference that makes them pass to the other side of the road, whether innocently or not, whether the result of disdain or mere distraction makes the priest and the Levite a sad reflection of the growing gulf between ourselves and the world around us. There are many ways to pass by at a safe distance. We can retreat inwards, ignore others, or be indifferent to their plight. Or simply look elsewhere, as in some countries or certain sectors of them, where contempt is shown for the poor and their culture, and one looks the other way as if a development plan imported from without could edge them out. This is how some justify their indifference. The poor, whose pleas for help might touch their hearts, simply do not exist. The poor are beyond the scope of their interest. 74. One detail about the passers-by does stand out. They were religious, devoted to the worship of God, a priest and a Levite. This detail should not be overlooked. It shows that belief in God and the worship of God are not enough to ensure that we are actually living in a way pleasing to God. A believer may be untrue to everything that his faith demands of him, and yet think he is close to God and better than others. The guarantee of an authentic openness to God, on the other hand, is a way of practicing the faith that helps open our hearts to our brothers and sisters. St. John Chrysostom expressed this pointedly when he challenged his Christian hearers, quote, Do you wish to honor the body of the Savior? Do not despise it when it is naked. Do not honor it in church with silk vestments while outside it is naked and numb with cold, unquote. Paradoxically, those who claim to be unbelievers can sometimes put God's will into practice better than believers. 75. Quote, robbers, unquote, usually find secret allies in those who, quote, pass by and look the other way, unquote. There is a certain interplay between those who manipulate and cheat society and those who, while claiming to be detached and impartial critics, live off that system and its benefits. There is a sad hypocrisy when the impunity of crime, the use of institutions for personal or corporate gain, and other evils apparently impossible to eradicate are accompanied by a relentless criticism of everything, a constant sowing of suspicion that results in distrust and confusion. The complaint that, quote, everything is broken, unquote, is answered by the claim that, quote, it can't be fixed, unquote, or, quote, what can I do, unquote. This feeds into disillusionment and despair and hardly encourages a spirit of solidarity and generosity. Plunging people into despair closes a perfectly perverse circle. 
Such is the agenda of the invisible dictatorship of hidden interests that have gained mastery over both resources and the possibility of thinking and expressing opinions. 76. Let us turn at last to the injured man. There are times when we feel like him, badly hurt and left on the side of the road. We can also feel helpless because our institutions are neglected and lack resources, or simply serve the interest of a few without and within. Indeed, quote, globalized society often has an elegant way of shifting its gaze. Under the guise of being politically correct or ideologically fashionable, we look at those who suffer without touching them. We televise live pictures of them, even speaking about them with euphemisms and with apparent tolerance, unquote. Starting anew. 77. Each day offers us a new opportunity, a new possibility. We should not expect anything from those who govern us, for that would be childish. We have the space we need for co-responsibility in creating and putting into place new processes and changes. Let us take an active part in renewing and supporting our troubled societies. Today we have a great opportunity to express our innate sense of fraternity, to be good Samaritans who bear the pain of other people's troubles rather than fomenting greater hatred and resentment. Like the chance traveler in the parable, we need only have a pure and simple desire to be a people, a community, constant and tireless in the effort to include, integrate, and lift up the fallen. We may often find ourselves succumbing to the mentality of the violent, the blindly ambitious, those who spread mistrust and lies. Others may continue to view politics or the economy as an arena for their own power plays. For our part, let us foster what is good and place ourselves at its service. 78. We can start from below and, case by case, act at the most concrete and local levels and then expand to the farthest reaches of our countries and our world with the same care and concern that the Samaritan showed for each of the wounded man's injuries. Let us seek out others and embrace the world as it is, without fear of pain or a sense of inadequacy, because there we will discover all the goodness that God has planted in human hearts. Difficulties that seem overwhelming are opportunities for growth, not excuses for a glum resignation that can lead only to acquiescence. Yet let us not do this alone as individuals. The Samaritan discovered an innkeeper who would care for the man. We too are called to unite as a family that is stronger than the sum of small individual members. For, quote, the whole is greater than the part, but it is also greater than the sum of its parts, unquote. Let us renounce the pettiness and resentment of useless infighting and constant confrontation. Let us stop feeling sorry for ourselves and acknowledge our crimes, our apathy, our lies. Reparation and reconciliation will give us new life and set us all free from fear. 79. The Samaritan who stopped along the way departed without expecting any recognition or gratitude. His effort to assist another person gave him great satisfaction in life and before his God, and thus became a duty. All of us have a responsibility for the wounded, those of our own people and all the peoples of the earth. Let us care for the needs of every man and woman, young and old, with the same fraternal spirit of care and closeness that marked the Good Samaritan. Neighbors Without Borders 80. Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan in answer to the question, Who is my neighbor? The word, quote, neighbor, unquote, in the society of Jesus' time usually meant those nearest us. 
It was felt that help should be given primarily to those of one's own group and race. For some Jews of that time, Samaritans were looked down upon, considered impure. They were not among those to be helped. Jesus, himself a Jew, completely transforms this approach. He asks us not to decide who is close enough to be our neighbor, but rather that we ourselves become neighbors to all. 81. Jesus asks us to be present to those in need of help, regardless of whether or not they belong to our social group. In this case, the Samaritan became a neighbor to the wounded Judean. By approaching and making himself present, he crossed all cultural and historical barriers. Jesus concludes the parable by saying, quote, Go and do likewise, unquote. Luke 10, 37. In other words, he challenges us to put aside all differences and in the face of suffering to draw near to others with no questions asked. I should no longer say that I have neighbors to help, but that I must myself be a neighbor to others. 82. The parable, though, is troubling. For Jesus says that the wounded man was a Judean, while the one who stopped and helped him was a Samaritan. This detail is quite significant for our reflection on a love that includes everyone. The Samaritans lived in a region where pagan rites were practiced. For the Jews, this made them impure, detestable, dangerous. In fact, one ancient Jewish text referring to nations that were hated speaks of Samaria as, quote, not even a people, unquote, Sirach 50.25. It also refers to, quote, the foolish people that live in Shechem, unquote, 50, 26. 83. This explains why a Samaritan woman, when asked by Jesus for a drink, answered curtly, quote, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria, unquote, John 4, 9. The most offensive charge that those who sought to discredit Jesus could bring was that he was, quote, possessed, unquote and, quote, a Samaritan, unquote, John 8.48. So this encounter of mercy between a Samaritan and a Jew is highly provocative. It leaves no room for ideological manipulation and challenges us to expand our frontiers. It gives a universal dimension to our call to love, one that transcends all prejudices, all historical and cultural barriers, all petty interests. The Plea of the Stranger 84. Finally, I would note that in another passage of the gospel, Jesus says, quote, I was a stranger and you welcomed me, unquote. Matthew 25, 35. Jesus could speak those words because he had an open heart, sensitive to the difficulties of others. St. Paul urges us to, quote, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, unquote. Romans 12, 15. When our hearts do this, they are capable of identifying with others without worrying about where they were born or come from. In the process, we come to experience others as our, quote, own flesh, unquote, Isaiah 58, 7. 85. For Christians, the words of Jesus have an even deeper meaning. They compel us to recognize Christ himself in each of our abandoned or excluded brothers and sisters. See Matthew 25, 40, 45. Faith has untold power to inspire and sustain our respect for others. For believers come to know that God loves every man and woman with infinite love 
and, quote, thereby confers infinite dignity, unquote, upon all humanity. We likewise believe that Christ shed his blood for each of us and that no one is beyond the scope of his universal love. If we go to the ultimate source of that love, which is the very life of the triune God, we encounter in the community of the three divine persons the origin and perfect model of all life in society. Theology continues to be enriched by its reflection on this great truth. 86. I sometimes wonder why, in light of this, it took so long for the Church unequivocally to condemn slavery and various forms of violence. Today, with our developed spirituality and theology, we have no excuses. Still, there are those who appear to feel encouraged or at least permitted by their faith to support varieties of narrow and violent nationalism, xenophobia and contempt, and even the mistreatment of those who are different. Faith and the humanism it inspires must maintain a critical sense in the face of these tendencies and prompt an immediate response whenever they rear their head. For this reason, it is important that catechesis and preaching speak more directly and clearly about the social meaning of existence, the fraternal dimension of spirituality, our conviction of the inalienable dignity of each person, and our reasons for loving and accepting all our brothers and sisters. Chapter 3. Envisaging and Engendering an Open World 87. Human beings are so made that they cannot live, develop, and find fulfillment except, quote, in the sincere gift of self to others, unquote. Nor can they fully know themselves apart from an encounter with other persons. Quote, I communicate effectively with myself only insofar as I communicate with others, unquote. No one can experience the true beauty of life without relating to others, without having real faces to love. This is part of the mystery of authentic human existence. Quote, life exists where there is bonding, communion, fraternity, and life is stronger than death when it is built on true relationships and bonds of fidelity. On the contrary, there is no life when we claim to be self-sufficient and live as islands. In these attitudes, death prevails, unquote. Moving Beyond Ourselves 88. In the depths of every heart, love creates bonds and expands existence, for it draws people out of themselves and towards others. Since we were made for love, in each one of us, quote, a law of ecstasis, unquote, seems to operate. Quote, the lover, quote, goes outside, unquote, the self to find a fuller existence in another, unquote. For this reason, quote, man always has to take up the challenge of moving beyond himself, unquote. 89. Nor can I reduce my life to relationships with a small group, even my own family. I cannot know myself apart from a broader network of relationships, including those that have preceded me and shaped my entire life. My relationship with those whom I respect has to take account of the fact that they do not live only for me, nor do I live only for them. Our relationships, if healthy and authentic, Open us to others who expand and enrich us. Nowadays, our noblest social instincts can easily be thwarted by self-centered chats that give the impression of being deep relationships. 
On the contrary, authentic and mature love and true friendship can only take root in hearts open to growth through relationships with others. As couples or friends, we find that our hearts expand as we step out of ourselves and embrace others. Closed groups and self-absorbed couples that define themselves in opposition to others tend to be expressions of selfishness and mere self-preservation. 90. Significantly, many small communities living in desert areas developed a remarkable system of welcoming pilgrims as an exercise of the sacred duty of hospitality. The medieval monastic communities did likewise, as we see from the rule of St. Benedict. While acknowledging that it might detract from the discipline and silence of monasteries, Benedict nonetheless insisted that, quote, the poor and pilgrims be treated with the utmost care and attention, unquote. Hospitality was one specific way of rising to the challenge and the gift present in an encounter with those outside one's own circle. The monks realized that the values they sought to cultivate had to be accompanied by a readiness to move beyond themselves in openness to others. The Unique Value of Love 91. People can develop certain habits that might appear as moral values, fortitude, sobriety, hard work, and similar virtues. Yet if the acts of the various moral virtues are to be rightly directed, one needs to take into account the extent to which they foster openness and union with others. That is made possible by the charity that God infuses. Without charity, we may perhaps possess only apparent virtues, incapable of sustaining life in common. Thus, St. Thomas Aquinas could say, quoting St. Augustine, that the temperance of a greedy person is in no way virtuous. St. Bonaventure, for his part, explained that the other virtues, without charity, strictly speaking, do not fulfill the commandments, quote, the way God wants them to be fulfilled, unquote. 92. The spiritual stature of a person's life is measured by love, which in the end remains, quote, the criterion for the definitive decision about a human life's worth or lack thereof, unquote. Yet some believers think that it consists in the imposition of their own ideologies upon everyone else, or in a violent defense of the truth, or in impressive demonstrations of strength. All of us, as believers, need to recognize that love takes first place. Love must never be put at risk, and the greatest danger lies in failing to love. See 1 Corinthians 13, 1-13. 93. St. Thomas Aquinas sought to describe the love made possible by God's grace as a movement outwards towards another, whereby we consider, quote, the beloved as somehow united to ourselves, unquote. Our affection for others makes us freely desire to seek their good. All this originates in a sense of esteem, an appreciation of the value of the other. This is ultimately the idea behind the word, quote, charity, unquote. Those who are loved are, quote, dear, unquote, to me. Quote, they are considered of great value, unquote. And, quote, the love whereby someone becomes pleasing, grata, to another is the reason why the latter bestows something on him freely, gratis, unquote. 94. Love, then, is more than just a series of benevolent actions, Those actions have their source in a union increasingly directed towards others, considering them of value, worthy, pleasing, and beautiful apart from their physical or moral appearances. Our love for others, for who they are, 
moves us to seek the best for their lives. Only by cultivating this way of relating to one another will we make possible a social friendship that excludes no one and a fraternity that is open to all. A love ever more open. 95. Love also impels us towards universal communion. No one can mature or find fulfillment by withdrawing from others. By its very nature, love calls for growth in openness and the ability to accept others as part of a continuing adventure that makes every periphery converge in a greater sense of mutual belonging. As Jesus told us, quote, you are all brothers, unquote, Matthew 23, 8. 96. This need to transcend our own limitations also applies to different regions and countries. Indeed, quote, the ever-increasing number of interconnections and communications in today's world makes us powerfully aware of the unity and common destiny of the nations. In the dynamics of history and in the diversity of ethnic groups, societies, and cultures, we see the seeds of a vocation to form a community composed of brothers and sisters who accept and care for one another, unquote. Open societies that integrate everyone. 97. Some peripheries are close to us, in city centers or within our families. Hence, there is an aspect of universal openness in love that is existential rather than geographical. It has to do with our daily efforts to expand our circle of friends, to reach those who, even though they are close to me, I do not naturally consider a part of my circle of interests. Every brother or sister in need, when abandoned or ignored by the society in which I live, becomes an existential foreigner, even though born in the same country. They may be citizens with full rights, yet they are treated like foreigners in their own country. Racism is a virus that quickly mutates and instead of disappearing, goes into hiding and lurks in waiting. 98. I would like to mention some of those, quote, hidden exiles, unquote, who are treated as foreign bodies in society. Many persons with disabilities, quote, feel that they exist without belonging and without participating, unquote. Much still prevents them from being fully enfranchised. Our concern should be not only to care for them, but to ensure their, quote, active participation in the civil and ecclesial community. That is a demanding and even tiring process, yet one that will gradually contribute to the formation of consciences capable of acknowledging each individual as a unique and unrepeatable person, unquote. I think, too, of, quote, the elderly who also, due to their disability, are sometimes considered a burden, unquote. Yet each of them is able to offer, quote, a unique contribution to the common good through their remarkable life stories, unquote. Let me repeat, we need to have, quote, the courage to give a voice to those who are discriminated against due to their disability, because sadly, in some countries even today, people find it hard to acknowledge them as persons of equal dignity, unquote. Inadequate understandings of universal love. 99. A love capable of transcending borders is the basis of what in every city and country can be called, quote, social friendship, unquote. Genuine social friendship within a society makes true universal openness possible. This is a far cry from the false universalism of those who constantly travel abroad because they cannot tolerate or love their own people. 
Those who look down on their own people tend to create within society categories of first and second class, people of greater or lesser dignity, people enjoying greater or fewer rights. In this way, they deny that there is room for everybody. 100. I am certainly not proposing an authoritarian and abstract universalism devised or planned by a small group and presented as an ideal for the sake of leveling, dominating, and plundering. One model of globalization, in fact, quote, consciously aims at a one-dimensional uniformity and seeks to eliminate all differences and traditions in superficial quest for unity. If a certain kind of globalization claims to make everyone uniform, to level everyone out, that globalization destroys the rich gifts and uniqueness of each person and each people, unquote. This false universalism ends up depriving the world of its various colors, its beauties, and ultimately its humanity. For, quote, the future is not monochrome. If we are courageous, we can contemplate it in all the variety and diversity of what each individual person has to offer. How much our human family needs to learn to live together in harmony and peace without all of us having to be the same, unquote. Beyond a world of, quote, associates, unquote. 101. Let us now return to the parable of the Good Samaritan, for it still has much to say to us. An injured man lay on the roadside. The people walking by him did not heed their interior summons to act as neighbors. They were concerned with their duties, their social status, their professional position within society. They considered themselves important for the society of the time and were anxious to play their proper part. The man on the roadside, bruised and abandoned, was a distraction, an interruption from all that. In any event, he was hardly important. He was a, quote, nobody, end quote, undistinguished, irrelevant to their plans for the future. The good Samaritan transcended these narrow classifications. He himself did not fit into any of these categories. He was simply a foreigner without a place in society. Free of every label and position, he was able to interrupt his journey, change his plans, and unexpectedly come to the aid of an injured person who needed his help. 102. What would be the reaction to that same story nowadays, in a world that constantly witnesses the emergence and growth of social groups clinging to an identity that separates them from others? How would it affect those who organize themselves in a way that prevents any foreign presence that might threaten their identity and their closed and self-referential structures. There, even the possibility of acting as a neighbor is excluded. One is a neighbor only to those who serve their purpose. The word, quote, neighbor, unquote, loses all meaning. There can only be, quote, associates, unquote, partners in the pursuit of particular interests. Liberty, Equality, and Fraternity 103. Fraternity is born not only of a climate of respect for individual liberties, or even of a certain administratively guaranteed equality. Fraternity necessarily calls for something greater, which in turn enhances freedom and equality. What happens when fraternity is not consciously cultivated, when there is a lack of political will to promote it through education in fraternity, through dialogue, and through the recognition of the values of reciprocity and mutual enrichment. Liberty becomes nothing more than a condition for living as we will, completely free to choose to whom 
or what we will belong, or simply to possess or exploit. This shallow understanding has little to do with the richness of a liberty directed above all to love. 104. Nor is equality achieved by an abstract proclamation that, quote, all men and women are equal, unquote. Instead, it is the result of the conscious and careful cultivation of fraternity. Those capable only of being, quote, associates, unquote, create closed worlds. Within that framework, what place is there for those who are not part of one's group of associates yet long for a better life for themselves and their families? 105. Individualism does not make us more free, more equal, more fraternal. The mere sum of individual interest is not capable of generating a better world for the whole human family, nor can it save us from the many ills that are now increasingly globalized. Radical individualism is a virus that is extremely difficult to eliminate, for it is clever. It makes us believe that everything consists in giving free rein to our own ambitions, as if by pursuing ever greater ambitions and creating safety nets, we would somehow be serving the common good. A Universal Love That Promotes Persons 106. Social friendship and universal fraternity necessarily call for an acknowledgement of the worth of every human person, always and everywhere. If each individual is of such great worth, it must be stated clearly and firmly that, quote, the mere fact that some people are born in places with fewer resources or less development does not justify the fact that they are living with less dignity, unquote. This is a basic principle of social life that tends to be ignored in a variety of ways by those who sense that it does not fit into their worldview or serve their purposes. 107. Every human being has the right to live with dignity and to develop integrally. This fundamental right cannot be denied by any country. People have this right even if they are unproductive or were born with or developed limitations. This does not detract from their great dignity as human persons, a dignity based not on circumstances, but on the intrinsic worth of their being. Unless this basic principle is upheld, there will be no future either for fraternity or for the survival of humanity. 108. Some societies accept this principle in part. They agree that opportunities should be available to everyone, but then go on to say that everything depends on the individual. From this skewed perspective, it would be pointless to, quote, favor an investment in efforts to help the slow, the weak, or the less talented to find opportunities in life, unquote. Investments in assistance to the vulnerable could prove unprofitable. They might make things less efficient. No. What we need, in fact, are states and civil institutions that are present and active, that look beyond the free and efficient working of certain economic, political, or ideological systems, and are primarily concerned with individuals and the common good. 109. Some people are born into economically stable families, receive a fine education, grow up well-nourished, or naturally possess great talent. They will certainly not need a proactive state. They need only claim their freedom. Yet the same rule clearly does not apply to a disabled person, to someone born in dire poverty, to those lacking a good education and with little access to adequate health care. 
If a society is governed primarily by the criteria of market freedom and efficiency, there is no place for such persons, and fraternity will remain just another vague ideal. 110. Indeed, quote, to claim economic freedom while real conditions bar many people from actual access to it, and while possibilities for employment continue to shrink, is to practice doublespeak, unquote. Words like freedom, democracy, or fraternity prove meaningless, for the fact is that, quote, only when our economic and social system no longer produces even a single victim, a single person cast aside, will we be able to celebrate the feast of universal fraternity, unquote. A truly human and fraternal society will be capable of ensuring in an efficient and stable way that each of its members is accompanied at every stage of life, not only by providing for their basic needs, but by enabling them to give the best of themselves. Even though their performance may be less than optimum, their pace slow or their efficiency limited. 111. The human person, with his or her inalienable rights, is by nature open to relationship. Implanted deep within us is the call to transcend ourselves through an encounter with others. For this reason, quote, care must be taken not to fall into certain errors which can arise from a misunderstanding of the concept of human rights and from its misuse. Today there is a tendency to claim ever broader individual, I am tempted to say individualistic, rights. Underlying this is a conception of the human person as detached from all social and anthropological context, as if the person were a, quote, monad, unquote, monas, increasingly unconcerned with others. Unless the rights of each individual are harmoniously ordered to the greater good, those rights will end up being considered limitless and consequently will become a source of conflicts and violence, unquote. Promoting the moral good, 112. Nor can we fail to mention that seeking and pursuing the good of others and of the entire human family also implies helping individuals and societies to mature in the moral values that foster integral human development. The New Testament describes one fruit of the Holy Spirit, see Galatians 5.22, as agathosine. The Greek word expresses attachment to the good, pursuit of the good. Even more, it suggests a striving for excellence and what is best for others, their growth and maturity and health, the cultivation of values and not simply material well-being. A similar expression exists in Latin, benevolentia. This is an attitude that, quote, wills the good, unquote, of others. It bespeaks a yearning for goodness, an inclination towards all that is fine and excellent, a desire to fill the lives of others with what is beautiful, sublime, and edifying. 113. Here, regrettably, I feel bound to reiterate that, quote, we have had enough of immorality and the mockery of ethics, goodness, faith, and honesty. It is time to acknowledge that light-hearted superficiality has done us no good. Once the foundations of social life are corroded, what ensues are battles over conflicting interests, unquote. Let us return to promoting the good for ourselves and the whole human family, and thus advance together towards an authentic and integral growth. Every society needs to ensure that values are passed on. 
Otherwise, what is handed down are selfishness, violence, corruption in its various forms, indifference, and ultimately, a life closed to transcendence and entrenched in individual interests. The Value of Solidarity 114. I would like especially to mention solidarity, which, quote, as a moral virtue and social attitude born of personal conversion, calls for commitment on the part of those responsible for education and formation. I think first of families, called to a primary and vital mission of education. Families are the first place where the values of love and fraternity, togetherness and sharing, concern and care for others are lived out and handed on. They are also the privileged milieu for transmitting the faith, beginning with those first simple gestures of devotion which mothers teach their children. Teachers who have the challenging task of training children and youth in schools or other settings should be conscious that their responsibility extends also to the moral, spiritual, and social aspects of life. The values of freedom, mutual respect, and solidarity can be handed on from a tender age. Communicators also have a responsibility for education and formation, especially nowadays when the means of information and communication are so widespread." 115. At a time when everything seems to disintegrate and lose consistency, it is good for us to appeal to the, quote, solidity, unquote, born of the consciousness that we are responsible for the fragility of others as we strive to build a common future. Solidarity finds concrete expression in service, which can take a variety of forms in an effort to care for others. And service in great part means, quote, caring for vulnerability, for the vulnerable members of our families, our society, our people, unquote. In offering such service, individuals learn to, quote, set aside their own wishes and desires, their pursuit of power, before the concrete gaze of those who are most vulnerable. Service always looks to their faces, touches their flesh, senses their closeness, and even, in some cases, quote, suffers, unquote that closeness and tries to help them. Service is never ideological, for we do not serve ideas, we serve people, unquote. 116. The needy generally, quote, practice the special solidarity that exists among those who are poor and suffering, and which our civilization seems to have forgotten or would prefer, in fact, to forget. Solidarity is a word that is not always well received. In certain situations, it has become a dirty word, a word that dare not be said. Solidarity means much more than engaging in sporadic acts of generosity. It means thinking and acting in terms of community. It means that the lives of all are prior to the appropriation of goods by a few. It also means combating the structural cases of poverty, inequality, the lack of work, land, and housing, the denial of social and labor rights. It means confronting the destructive effects of the empire of money. Solidarity, understood in its most profound meaning, is a way of making history, and this is what popular movements are doing, unquote. 117. When we speak of the need to care for our common home, our planet, we appeal to that spark of universal consciousness and mutual concern that may still be present in people's hearts. Those who enjoy a surplus of water yet choose to conserve it for the sake of the greater human family have attained a moral stature that allows them to look beyond themselves and the group to which they belong. How marvelously human! 
The same attitude is demanded if we are to recognize the rights of all people, even those born beyond our own borders. Reenvisaging the special role of property. 118. The world exists for everyone because all of us were born with the same dignity. Differences of color, religion, talent, place of birth or residence, and so many others cannot be used to justify the privileges of some over the rights of all. As a community, we have an obligation to ensure that every person lives with dignity and has sufficient opportunities for his or her integral development. 119. In the first Christian centuries, a number of thinkers developed a universal vision in their reflections on the common destination of created goods. This led them to realize that if one person lacks what is necessary to live with dignity, it is because another person is detaining it. St. John Chrysostom summarizes it in this way, quote, Not to share our wealth with the poor is to rob them and take away their livelihood. The riches we possess are not our own, but theirs as well, unquote. In the words of St. Gregory the Great, quote, When we provide the needy with their basic needs, we are giving them what belongs to them, not to us, unquote. 120. Once more, I would like to echo a statement of St. John Paul II, whose forcefulness has perhaps been insufficiently recognized. Quote, God gave the earth to the whole human race for the sustenance of all its members, without excluding or favoring anyone, unquote. For my part, I would observe that, quote, the Christian tradition has never recognized the right to private property as absolute or inviolable and has stressed the social purpose of all forms of private property, unquote. The principle of the common use of created goods is the, quote, first principle of the whole ethical and social order, unquote. It is a natural and inherent right that takes priority over others. All other rights having to do with the goods necessary for the integral fulfillment of persons, including that of private property or any other type of property, should, in the words of St. Paul VI, quote, in no way hinder this right, but should actively facilitate its implementation, unquote. The right to private property can only be considered a secondary natural right derived from the principle of the universal destination of created goods. This has concrete consequences that ought to be reflected in the workings of society. Yet it often happens that secondary rights displace primary and overriding rights, in practice making them irrelevant. Rights Without Borders 121. No one then can remain excluded because of his or her place of birth, much less because of privileges enjoyed by others who were born in lands of greater opportunity. The limits and borders of individual states cannot stand in the way of this. As it is unacceptable that some have fewer rights by virtue of being women, it is likewise unacceptable that the mere place of one's birth or residence should result in his or her possessing fewer opportunities for a developed and dignified life. 122. Development must not aim at the amassing of wealth by a few, but must ensure, quote, human rights personal and social, economic and political, including the rights of nations and of peoples, unquote. The right of some to free enterprise or market freedom cannot supersede the rights of peoples and the dignity of the poor, or, for that matter, respect for the natural environment. For, quote, if we make something our own, 
it is only to administer it for the good of all, unquote. 123. Business activity is essentially, quote, a noble vocation directed to producing wealth and improving our world, unquote. God encourages us to develop the talents He gave us, and He has made our universe one of immense potential. In God's plan, each individual is called to promote his or her own development, and this includes finding the best economic and technological means of multiplying goods and increasing wealth. Business abilities, which are a gift from God, should always be clearly directed to the development of others and to eliminating poverty, especially through the creation of diversified work opportunities. The right to private property is always accompanied by the primary and prior principle of the subordination of all private property to the universal destination of the earth's goods, and thus the right of all to their use. The Rights of Peoples 124. Nowadays, a firm belief in the common destination of the earth's goods requires that this principle also be applied to nations, their territories, and their resources. Seen from the standpoint not only of the legitimacy of private property and the rights of its citizens, but also of the first principle of the common destination of goods, we can then say that each country also belongs to the foreigner, inasmuch as a territory's goods must not be denied to a needy person coming from elsewhere. As the bishops of the United States have taught, there are fundamental rights that, quote, precede any society because they flow from the dignity granted to each person as created by God, unquote. 125. This presupposes a different way of understanding relations and exchanges between countries. If every human being possesses an inalienable dignity, if all people are my brothers and sisters, and if the world truly belongs to everyone, then it matters little whether my neighbor was born in my country or elsewhere. My own country also shares responsibility for his or her development, although it can fulfill that responsibility in a variety of ways. It can offer a generous welcome to those in urgent need or work to improve living conditions in their native lands by refusing to exploit those countries or to drain them of natural resources, backing corrupt systems that hinder the dignified development of their peoples. What applies to nations is true also for different regions within each country, since there too great inequalities often exist. At times, the inability to recognize equal human dignity leads the more developed regions in some countries to think that they can jettison the, quote, dead weight, unquote, of poorer regions and so increase their level of consumption. 126. We are really speaking about a new network of international relations, since there is no way to resolve the serious problems of our world if we continue to think only in terms of mutual assistance between individuals or small groups. Nor should we forget that, quote, inequity affects not only individuals but entire countries. It compels us to consider an ethics of international relations, unquote. Indeed, justice requires recognizing and respecting not only the rights of individuals, but also social rights and the rights of peoples. This means finding a way to ensure, quote, the fundamental right of peoples to subsistence and progress, unquote, a right which is at times severely restricted by the pressure created by foreign debt. In many instances, debt repayment not only fails to promote development, but gravely limits and conditions it. While respecting the principle that all legitimately acquired debt must be repaid, the way in which many poor countries fulfill this obligation should not end up 
compromising their very existence and growth. 127. Certainly all this calls for an alternative way of thinking. Without an attempt to enter into that way of thinking, what I am saying here will sound wildly unrealistic. On the other hand, if we accept the great principle that there are rights born of our inalienable human dignity, we can rise to the challenge of envisaging a new humanity. We can aspire to a world that provides land, housing, and work for all. This is the true path of peace, not the senseless and myopic strategy of sowing fear and mistrust in the face of outside threats. For a real and lasting peace will only be possible quote, on the basis of a global ethic of solidarity and cooperation in the service of a future shaped by interdependence and shared responsibility in the whole human family, unquote. 